The opinions expressed in the Palace of Glittering Delights are mine and mine alone. No one would be stupid enough to hold them. The things discussed in the Palace of Glittering Delights may lead to spoilers if you have not seen the topic of today's episode. There may also be occasional ranting and swearing. Don't say I didn't warn you. Television has never been afraid to take a supernatural theme and apply it to even normal, everyday shows that feature no supernatural elements at all. A few years ago, I did an episode about normal TV shows that did science fiction episodes. The Nadir, or the best, depending on your point of view, was the Dukes of Hazard helping an alien visitor get back into space. However, supernatural elements are more easily explained and often played for laughs in more serious shows. Thomas Magnum encountered some spooky elements in Magnum P.I., but these were often explained away as being Magnum's overactive imagination or his little voice, which spoke to him a lot during the series. Likewise, Sam Beckett over in Quantum Leap may or may not have encountered a ghost, but in a story about a time traveller, that's not that unusual. The best of these are when the audience are actually convinced, or the writers want the audience to be convinced, that the supernatural elements are in some way real. Well within the fictional framework of the TV show they are watching, anyway. So, we get an episode of Castle that never actually contradicts Castle's ridiculous theory of the week, that the case he and Beckett are investigating can only work if their main suspect is a time traveller. Normally, the viewer would expect this to be debunked before the end credits, but not this time. Angela Chase, in My So-Called Life, encountered an actual angel, and Felicity started time travelling. These elements are never debunked as a dream or a nightmare within the fictional reality of Castle, a standard, no-nonsense, please procedural. There is a time traveller. Angela Chase met an actual angel. There are more supernatural elements in these so-called realistic shows than in Scooby-Doo, where all the supernatural elements are revealed to be just the janitor in a mask. Mostly these stories concern ghosts, hauntings, or other spooky goings-on. You know, stuff that can be explained by coincidence, happenstance, or leaving an open window open for the wind to blow something over. And then there was that time Starsky and Hutch investigated a vampire. Yes, the 70 sex symbols encroached upon Kolchak's territory in an episode imaginatively entitled The Vampire. There's a pretty cool horror pedigree to this episode, it being directed by Bob Kelgen, who also directed two Count Yorga films and the black exploitation flick Scream Blackula Scream, and the writers, Michael Grace and Mark Victor, wrote Poltergeist. It also features John Saxon as René Nadasse, who was in everything in the 70s and 80s, so we know the vampire will at least be credible. I say credible. First off, this is the iconic season of Starsky and Hutch, at least as far as the opening titles go. 
the candy apple red Ford Torino tours around the mean streets of LA, into litter-strewn alleyways, and Starsky, decked in his iconic black and white cardigan, and Hutch in his seminal green and white letterman's jacket, leap over bonnets and roofs, tear down stairwells, and emerge from swimming pools. This is Starsky and Hutch at the most popular. To get you in the mood, is the theme. <laughs> of this episode, which aired on October 30th, 1976 in the States, and barely a month later, on November 20th, 1976, on BBC One, are apparent from the get-go. Lightning cracks, thunder roars, and a man in a silky white shirt with poofy sleeves stands in a candlelit room talking to a portrait of his dead wife. I always wonder who lights all these candles before the characters do these monologues. Do they think, I'll make this more atmospheric by having candles everywhere? Who are they doing it for? They're alone. Do they know we're watching? Does Nisadi know he's in a TV show? That would explain the stupidity of this plot, as Nisadi seems to think vampirism will bring his wife back from the dead, which anyone with even a rudimentary knowledge of Christopher Lee movies knows is bollocks. We never find out why Nasadi believes this, nor do we find out how his wife died. After this monologue, he turns to the camera to reveal not only John Saxon's enviable cheekbones, but pointed teeth. Nasadi is a vampire. Or thinks he's a vampire. Let's not, you know, shoot that bolt just yet. Our next scene is 70s television at its absolute finest. A stunningly beautiful blonde gets off the bus, all Farrah Flick and bell-bottom jeans. Not just any bell-bottom jeans, no, these beauties have cream cuffs. She has a large belt on one of those shirts with tassels that was inexplicably popular in the mid-70s. She's not wearing a bra because, again, 70s, but that's okay. And she's clearly of an age where gravity isn't a problem. Tanned and gorgeous she may be, but she's not dumb as she pulls off her wonderfully stacked blocker boots to better walk in a straight line. Creepy music. Thunderclap. John Saxon's leering, sweaty face, all pointed teeth and menacing demeanour. The woman walks past the Friends Fountain, where Charlton Heston was shot to death at the end of the Omega Man, 
stops to find her keys in her bag, but sadly she's never to be seen again as we see Nadasse burring down upon her, cape fluttering in the wind. He attacks! Cut to the playpen. Huggy Burr's current financial venture, where Starsky and Hutch can be seen enjoying a rare night off. So, of course, they spend it together, hitting on women. This scene is wonderful. Jazzy sax music with a disco beat pounds out on the soundtrack. Starsky and Hutch eye up two lovelies in the mirror. It's going to be a good night. There's a lot of mirrors in this episode. A nice nod to that part of vampire lore that a vampire casts no reflection. Starsky and Hutch hitting on women is always the corniest aspect of the show nowadays because they both turn into clowns, playing one-upsmanship, insulting each other to gain points and generally being quite boorish. But this is one of the rare times it's played straight. Sadly, as always for the boys, Captain Doby calls to tell them about the dead body and off we go. In terms of screenwriting, this is textbook. The protagonist has been introduced alongside his personality quirk. He thinks, or again, is, a vampire. He's somewhat sympathetic, being a broken man due to the loss of his wife. He may also be suffering from mental health issues due to this loss. We've had a murder, a beautiful woman because we're shallow as a species and don't really care if an ugly person is killed, and this brings Starsky and Hutch into the case. If you've never seen the show, Starsky and Hutch are introduced well, with some light banter and character comedy. In terms of plot, though, there are holes big enough to spin the Torino through. I've already mentioned Nadasi's complete misunderstanding of vampire lore, perhaps because he's mixing it up with Frankenstein. But here we have Starsky and Hutch off duty, and Doby calls them in. Why? Does he have no other homicide detectives? Who are all those guys loitering around in the office then? And how does Doby know where to find them? Huggy says this isn't his place. He's looking after it for his cousin who's done a runner whilst he sorts out some, you know, niggling little tax issues. So either Doby keeps his eye on Huggy for reasons, or Starsky and Hutch tell him about their off-duty plans. Doby tells Starsky and Hutch the comely girl who was murdered was a dancer at Slade's Cave, a sleazy dive which makes Huggy's places look like quality establishments. Slade is a real piece of work, and he'll be this episode's red-heading du jour. Every detective show needs them. Slade's coked-up girlfriend knew the girl. Her name was Honey Williams, and she was a much better dancer than this dive would lead you to believe. And this leads Starsky and Hutch to her dance teacher. See if you can guess who that is. Yes, if you guessed René Nazade, give yourself, well, something. I don't care, really. I'm not giving you anything. Whilst this isn't really detective work, basically one character just tells Starsky and Hutch what to go to next, the Slade's cave scene reminds us that Starsky and Hutch was quite a gritty show in its heyday. Slade is terrified the cops will pin this on him, because he's clearly up to something, even if it's not murder. And that he keeps his lady friends too high to even be able to talk properly shows what kind of a man he really is. Starsky and Hutch never shied away from the seedier side of L.A. René is quite the actor. When told Honey is dead, he feigns ignorance and upset really quite well. And had this been a longer show, this could have been a good way to show he's compartmentalising his murderous persona, hiding it behind his kindly dance instructor life. 
Sadly, he then walks in front of a mirror showing his reflection. Far better here for this to have been angled so we didn't see his reflection, adding to the idea that Nasadi may be a vampire. The autopsy on Honey comes back from the lab and it shows there were two puncture wounds in her neck and blood missing. This is all Starsky needs to let his imagination go wild. From a character perspective, this is all on point. Starsky, open-minded, accepting and willing to be open to different ideas. Hutch, far more pragmatic and dismissive. Starsky throws himself into this idea wholeheartedly, reading up on vampire lore and pointing out to his sceptical partner that irrespective of if they are dealing with a vampire, devil worship and satanic cults are involved. Because it's the 70s and satanic cults were always involved. Apropos of nothing, Starsky and Hutch will investigate a satanic cult in next year's Halloween episode, the incredibly campy and dumb Satan's Witches. The dialogue is crisp and fun in this scene, with Paul Michael Glazer and David Soule bouncing off each other wonderfully. Starsky's evidence that, and I quote, these are modern times, they're landing cameras on Mars and letting women try out for football teams, made my wife laugh out loud like allowing women to try out for football, was considered the epitome of women's liberation. This is followed by another hysterical scene, where Hutch spots that Starsky is wearing a clove of garlic. Starsky, despite his partner's dismissal, got him one too, which is sweet and funny, especially when he stuffs it in Hutch's laughing face. Even Huggy Burr's getting in on the act, having created a vampire protection kit, Again, this is funny stuff, Glazer selling Starsky's naivete wonderfully, and Hutch being deeply irritated by the whole thing. The comedy in this episode is its saving grace. It's not too broad like in the undercover episodes, where Starsky and Hutch would wear stupid clothes and go undercover as hairdressers and whatnot, and overact badly. This is quite subtle and genuinely funny. Huggy tells Starsky and Hutch about Gaibo, a guy heavily into the occult scene. Gaibo tells Starsky and Hutch that Slade runs a cabal whereby his followers dance naked under a full moon and cover themselves in virgin's blood. I don't know about you guys, but it sounds like he's our man. Which, of course, is why he isn't. Still, while Starsky and Hutch are chasing down this blind alley, Nasadi kills again. However, this time Starsky and Hutch are there, responding to a random call from a civilian that a man in a cloak was seen in a parking garage. This is some of the laziest writing in this episode, and more down to the standards of Charlie's Angels and TJ Hooker than Starsky and Hutch. We need to see the duo getting close to the suspect, and they've pretty much eliminated Nasadi at this point, so we need to bring him back into the frame. It's inelegant, but necessary, and leads to a great moment. Hutch chases Nasadi up to the roof of the parking garage. Nasadi avoids Hutch and leaps to the next garage roof, which Hutch interprets as flying. It's dumb, but funny. The lead about Slade turns out to be fraudulent. Yes, Slade has this bizarre cabal, but it's all phony baloney, an easy way to make a quick book. This leads Hutch to finally do some detective work, looking into the backgrounds of the dead girls, and he discovers they were all dancers. And were, lovely listener, do you think they dance? Yes, at Nasadi's dance studio. Starsky and Hutch arrive at the dance studio in time to save Nasadi's next victim and chase him into the rafters, where he nearly throws Starsky down to his death. 
Once again, I marvel in this show at just how many of the stunts Sol and Glazer did. Glazer impressively runs up an almost vertical ladder, and Sol is actually seen swinging from the rafters at some considerable height. Yes, stunt doubles are employed. They aren't going to dangle Paul Michael Glazer over a ten-foot-high drop, as much as the producers may have wanted to, but credit where it's due. It's a fun climax, and in the end, it's Nasadi who falls to his death. We find out a lot about Nasadi, that a bum leg caused him to crash out of a promising career. He then opened the dance studio and met his wife. But we don't find out why he thought vampirism would resurrect his wife, or even why he believed in it. Did he believe himself to be a vampire? What did he think when he put the fake teeth in? How did he rationalise this in his head? Why did the death of his wife send him so completely over the edge? There's a fascinating character study here that the episode only touches upon. And the thing is, it's almost there. One less comedy bit with garlic. And one more scene acknowledging that Nasadi just fell down a rabbit hole of misinformation and misjudgment after his wife's death. Maybe he learned of Slade's cult tying the two plot lines together. And disappointed they weren't the real deal, he fell deeper and darker into a spiralling cycle of loss and grief. We later see him dancing on stage in full vampire garb. Maybe he played that character on stage at an earlier part of his career. Perhaps he then relapsed into that character, the idea of eternal life being appealing to him after his loss. Nevertheless, the climax is fun. And in the tag, Huggy, believing Starsky to have been bitten by Nasada, is preferring to de-vampire him, as they once again try to get off with the girls from earlier on. Again, sometimes the tags in Starsky and Hutch could be corny and embarrassing, but this one, yet another riff on, he's Starsky, I'm Hutch, sees Starsky donning plastic vampire teeth and closing this Halloween-themed episode off with a joyful grin. As an actual horror episode, it's a bit of a letdown. John Saxon and director Kelgen do what they can, but it was never going to be a real vampire, not in a show as grounded in at least some semblance of reality as this one. That said, Glazer and Soul are at the top of their game, the chemistry working exceptionally well, and the humour is, for the most part, actually quite funny. As a fun and frothy Halloween episode of a normally straight show, this was a winner. Hey Mike, have you heard about my new podcast? Oh, what's that? Oh, it's where you talk to people on your computer and then put it out on the internet. <sighs> yeah, yes, I know what a podcast is. 
Paul, but but what does the show you're doing? Yeah, I'm going to talk to people on my computer and then put it out on the internet. And uh, what's this called? Uh, since it's a chat show and I really want to talk to interesting people about interesting things, I thought I'd call it something that was, you know, self-explanatory, like Dial F for Flanger. Right. Dial F for Flanger. Cool. I, I look forward to my guest spot. When are you going to have me on? Uh, um, yeah, uh, uh, I'll get back. Wow. Well, if you'd like to hear Paul chatting away on this Dial F for Flanger show, you can find it on the Waiting for Doom Network. Okay, let's dig into the email sack. See what delights await the in. Our first email tonight is from Robert Ludwig. Hello, Robert. Andy. Web Spinners 5. I was just finishing your Web Spinners series. Really, I've liked all the shows. Other than back issues, I hadn't read many issues until 1995, the year I got married and started collecting. This was also around the time I had a little more spending money. You got married and had more money? What's the secret, dude? Anyway, in this show you mentioned Friendly Neighbourhood Spider-Man issue 23. I remember this issue well, or at least one of the last panels with the note from the effing Spider-Man. Laughed at that when I saw it, and laugh whenever somebody brings it up on a podcast. In 2016, Wizard World Comic Con was coming to Des Moines, Iowa, near where I live. So I got the three-day ticket for me and a Sunday-only ticket for my wife. My son was still young enough to be free. Oh, remember those days. I brought this issue up. I brought this issue because both Peter David and Todd Nork were going to be there. I was able to get both their autographs easily because they were sitting right next to each other. I had some conversations throughout the con with Peter David, mainly about comics or some of his other writings. Sunday came around and I brought my wife and son. After getting our picture with the 60s Batmobile and a couple of other things for my son, we went to Peter's table. He had a book he had written. I thought my wife might like because she was an English literature teacher at the time. As they were talking, my son started to wander off as he was about eight. I tried to get his attention, but he went too far by saying his name, Peter. After calling him a few times, Peter David looks at me and basically says, What? He was very polite about it. I apologised and told him my son's name was also Peter and I was trying to get his attention. So we all got a laugh out of that. I hope you enjoyed that little story. Thank you again, Robert Ludwig, Nevada, Iowa. That was fun, that. It's quite interesting and nice to hear nice stories about Peter David. Because, you know, not not always the case with Peter David, is it? I'll just leave that there. Alex Johans has emailed in. Uh, update. Hi, Andrew. I confess I quietly cringed after sending my last email and haven't listened since. <laughs> Which email was that? What did you cringe at? I wonder. Hope you're well. I am tickety-boo, Alex. I have finally finished my Great Trek marathon and watched Voyager, which means I have now watched all of the original series, the animated series, Deep Space Nine, Voyager and Enterprise. Deep Space Nine is my favourite. Surprisingly, Enterprise is a close second. I've also just finished watching all three seasons of Sequest. It occurs to me that there isn't a podcast on it, which is a shame, as it is damned good. It's going to be weird the next time I watch Jaws and go, oh, look, that's Nathan Bridger. He finally got that bigger boat. Anyway, the reason I'm emailing to you is I needed a break from space opera, so I've begun to binge watch Erwolf. Specifically, I just watched the first episode. Oh, the pilot film's great. I love that pilot movie. I'm half outraged at the treatment of women in this episode and half admire how well the episode so thoroughly manipulated my feelings. Overall, Erwolf has a lot more depth than I came in expecting. Either that or I'm becoming more sentimental as I get older. 
I do thank you, incidentally, as it was your podcast episodes covering a selection of sequests that made me aware of it. I went in otherwise totally blind, and while there are plot inconsistencies with the more sci-fi stuff, I do enjoy it. It was so great to see Kent McCord, who played John Crichton's father in Farscape, as a badass astronaut in Sequest. Well, he was also Troy in Galactica 1980. Was he Troy or was he Dylan? I always got those two mixed up. Even William Shatner was good in his get William Shatner's always great. As an aside, concerning Shatner, I recently watched Kingdom of the Spiders, which is actually a much better film than you think it's going to be, and Shatner's great in it. Shatner's really brilliant in it. There's very few people who can upstage animals. Shatner can upstage animals. Anyway, the dog's getting excited, so we'll wrap up Alex's emails, though apparently Charlton Heston guest starred in an episode, and I missed it. Yeah, Heston's pretty good in that one, if memory serves. Um, with the dog going batshit, it's time to call it a day. You can email us at virginmedia.com. There he goes. That's always the signifier for the end of the show, isn't it? And uh, next time, I don't know, because I've recorded these in the wrong order. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll see you next time with whatever comes down the pipe. Take care. I'll see you real soon. Goodbye.